Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Earnings continue to be in focus this week, as will a key congressional hearing on the debt ceiling crisis and the federal response to recent bank failures meeting on Capitol Hill. Markets are also digesting last week's Fed rate hike. Joining us today is Director of Global Macro, Erian Timmer, who feels the market's expectations that the Fed will soon begin an easing campaign is wishful thinking. With host Pamela Ritchie today, Urian addresses what is his biggest area of focus and concern from a technical perspective. He'll also unpack this week's key market movers and explain what they could mean for you. And per usual, Urian will be sharing his charts, so please head to at Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. This podcast was recorded on May 8th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hi, Grian. Very pleased to have time to speak with you today. How are you? Good morning, Pamela. Yeah, great to have you join us here. So there's a lot, again, lots of headlines. We know that. We'll go through some of these things. I mean, April is behind us. We saw the jobs report and it was a big week last week. I wonder if we kind of go back before we go forward, actually. So we'll start off today with valuation versus earnings, which Urian tweeted on May 8th. And again, that's at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter. You know, it's kind of the same story that we've been discussing, but Obviously, we know that earnings have been coming down. The Fed has been raising rates. So we're in that very late stage of the business cycle. And of course, what everyone wants to know is, do we will we get a recession? How bad will it be? How long will it last? And uh, will it be, would it be soft and shallow enough for the market to look past? So if you, if you look at the juxtaposition here of earnings growth, which is the orange bars, um, and uh, valuation changes, which are the purple bars, you can see we are converging at zero, uh, coming from opposite ends, from opposite extremes, I would even say. And so if this is going to be a soft landing, which um, I don't know if that's going to happen, but that certainly is what the market seems to expect when you look at the Fed's forward curve, which we'll talk about in a moment, and you look at uh, the consensus earnings um, estimates for the next, uh, you know, four to six quarters, market is, you know, is basing itself off of a soft landing. And if that happens, history would suggest per the chart below, and this one only goes back 10 years, but I've got it going back 150 years. Um, what you would see is that the purple bars were, would start to move up across zero, even if the orange bars go modestly below zero. And what you would have is your typical, you know, price leads earnings type of of, um, of backdrop. And so, of course, we've had first quarter earnings season. 425 companies have reported now. If we go to slide 14, the next one. Next up, earnings estimate progression, also tweeted on May 8th. 
it was really a very strong quarter. Um, and, and I think, yeah, I mean, the last couple of quarters ha have been ones where uh, I think the marketplace, um, you know, would say, myself included, that, you know, if there's going to be another shoe to drop, it, it's, it should be like now-ish that it would drop. And so what we see here is the, the chart I usually show, which is the, the progression of growth estimates going into the beginning of the quarter, which is the vertical line. And so the pink line is Q1. And we started at a minus 8% expected growth rate, and we're ending at a 0% growth rate. So that's an 800 basis point um, improvement. And if we look at sort of the underlying data, 425 companies have reported, 78% have beaten estimates by an average of about 6-7%, so very similar numbers. Different data set, but different conclusion. So it was a very solid uh, quarter. And if we go to the next slide. Which is S&P 500 revenues, tweeted on May 9th. This will be followed by earnings and margins, which is also the next tweet. You know, it, it kind of makes sense because one of the things we've been discussing the last few months is that while we're focused on the bottom line, earnings, margins, etc., the top line, revenues, uh, continue to make new cyclical highs. So that's the black line on the top there. And, you know, that is a nominal chart, of course, so inflation is going to play a role there. But still, revenues have not skipped a beat uh, during this entire period of the Fed raising rates from zero to now over 5%. So it's pretty remarkable. And, you know, the bears out there will say, you know, just wait. It's just been maybe the bear market has been postponed, but it has, but it's still coming. Um, and in the meantime, if we go to the next slide, you can see that, you know, in between earnings modestly falling and revenue staying up, you know, the difference is that margins had been falling and are now stabilizing. And you can see there in that dark blue line that that's exactly what's happened. So margins are at 12% and holding. 12% uh, happens to be the pre-COVID cyclical peak as well. So right now, things are still stable. And, you know, we discussed last week, you know, why that might be. And I, and I pointed out several reasons, I think. And one of them is um, that, you know, corporates and homeowners, at least in the U.S., have largely termed out their debt. They locked in those low rates a couple of years ago. And so therefore, they're, they're unlikely to be that sensitive to rising rates. And the other one is that, you know, obviously we're seeing a lot of headlines from the banking system and the smaller banks and the smaller regional banks obviously are hurting here because they're seeing deposits flee um, either because, you know, depositors are, are not feeling comfortable with, with that bank, or, or more likely, uh, they're just looking for higher yields elsewhere. Remember, you can buy T-bills in the States or money market funds at 5%. The average rate on bank deposits is only half a percent. So deposits are moving out of banks. And if those banks have invested those deposits uh, via the fractional reserve system into loans or bonds and they bought those bonds you know two years ago at two percent uh they're going to need to realize losses <clears throat> in order to keep their capital ratios in line so the banking story has not gone away it was front and center again last week with pac west and a few other names but for the large banks the super large banks um i think this notion of having turned out their debt i think is also applicable 
Next slide is yield curves, which was last tweeted on April 27th at the time of recording. But keep an eye on Urian's most recent tweets for an updated version. So in this chart, and this is not a perfect um, way to look at it, but we know how inverted the yield curve is. That's the black line. Uh, it's the most inverted in 40 years. And usually that spells trouble because an inverted yield curve means banks are upside down in terms of their funding versus what their assets are yielding. And so then they stop making new loans, which gets, gets, you know, which, uh, leads to a credit crunch, which leads to a recession. But if you look at the fact that the mega banks, uh, offer deposit rates of basically zero, um, then all of a sudden, if that is their funding, which generally it is, um, you can argue that that purple line there, that their yield curve for the mega banks still remains as steep as it ever has been. And so it's hard to point to the credit crunch scenario and therefore a recession. So I, I'm not, I don't want to explain away the, the likelihood of a recession. I think that still should be everyone's base case some sometime in the second half of the year or early next year. But there are very easy ways to illustrate, you know, and you never want to say it's different this time, but there are easy ways to illustrate why that recession may be uh, not biting yet because the funding costs for a large part of the economy remains well below where the Fed is going with interest rates. And therefore, the economy seems to be less rate sensitive than maybe it has been in the past. And with the jobs number on Friday, there's still strength, another thing that you pointed to last week. Yes, exactly. The jobs report was still another decent report, a couple hundred thousand jobs, 3.4% unemployment. Uh, and it's, you know, it's pretty amazing. The, I mean, the Fed has raised rates so aggressively by so much in such a short time, going from zero to five and a quarter in the span of a little bit more than a year, um, that, you know, the fact that there are barely any signs of a recession. I mean, yes, there are some layoffs in the tech sector, but, you know, I was uh, in downtown Boston yesterday, or not in downtown, but in the back bay uh, I was on an airplane. I was in Orlando at a conference last week. Um, you know, everything is full. All the airplanes are full. The streets are busy. Uh, like it's, there are very few signs out there from where I'm, uh, from where I'm sitting that a recession is either here or, or imminent. And of course, the glass half empty version of that is that that will only cause the Fed to stay higher for longer, right? And so, here, you know, if we maybe we transition to the Fed chart of slide five. Can, can I just um, ask within yeah. that? So with within that of the Fed needing to stay perhaps higher for longer, it sort of brings in the the federal debt, right? Like the government situation, who are just saddled with debt now at a, a very different cost of um, maintaining that debt. Yes. So so. This is clearly becoming an issue, and you, we saw last week when the Fed did take the free option to raise rates one more time, uh, and we pull up slide five here. And that slide is the Fed and the market, tweeted on May 3rd. That uh, we're starting to see calls from politicians, from lawmakers, um, publicly saying to the Fed, don't do it, you know, right. uh, because if you're, you know, if you're a politician uh, in any country, but in the U.S. as well, and you see the budget, the government's budget being, um, you know, to, um, having to spend a larger part of that budget going to debt service. That means that's less money to spend from, from by politicians on either side of the aisle. 
And so if rates stay high for longer, um, you can imagine that at some point there will be more pressure on the Fed to lower rates. And, and maybe we can save that conversation for, for in a few minutes. But that, that creates all kinds of existential questions about, you know, reliving the 1940s and the Fed's independence. And maybe this is why gold and Bitcoin are on the move. And, and I have some ideas about that. But before we go there, so, so the, the market currently is saying the Fed is done. Last hike is in the bag. And now the Fed is going to start cutting rates by about, you know, 250 basis points. Um, frankly, I think that's wishful thinking. And this forward curve, I mean, I have these curves going back 30 years. Um, it used to be the LIBOR curve, then the Fed funds curve. Now it's the SOFR curve. But the market is almost always wrong about this. And, and it doesn't mean that, you know, the whole system is going to come down to come crashing down. It's just that I don't know where the math comes from to assume this, but I do have a, a guess. And if we go to the previous slide. The slides are keeping us on our toes today. Here we have the last tightening Fed policy rate tweeted on May 3rd. This is the Fed funds forward curve or the SOFA curve, I should say, uh, assuming that last week was the last rate hike. And I do think that that's a fair assumption. If I were at the Fed, I would certainly want to pause here because they did a lot in a very short time and monetary policy works with long lags. And so they don't want to overdo it. And I think by most measures, the Fed is now restrictive enough that it can afford to be data dependent. Right. Six months ago, it couldn't say that because it was so far from reaching that point still that it had to just go blindly to five percent. But now that it's there, it can take a pause. But if but what I find interesting is that. You know, as we try to figure out what kind of PhD black boxes are used to, to construct this forward curve, all we really have to look at this chart, right? So the black line is the Fed up to now and the forward curve from the middle to the right of the chart. And then overlaid are all the, all the, the actual paths of the Fed funds rate, um, around cyclical peaks in the rate. And if you look at that bright blue line, that's the average. And the current forward curve looks basically exactly like the average. So maybe there are no PhDs involved with this. Maybe it's just like we're just going to plot whatever the market has done in the past. And and, and maybe that's all there is to it. <laughs> it's it's so fascinating how all of this is coming together. And then would you say on, I mean, the side of things, things are breaking or or is how concerned are you about the banking story right now? I mean, you've mentioned it, but it's it's a pretty big headline being followed right now. Now let's look at the Fed cycle, tweeted on May 4th. So it's it's a two-tiered story for the banks, right? So if you're a smaller regional or a community bank, clearly there is, are problems, uh, right? So the top line here, I show the um, uh, bank deposits uh, going back a couple of decades. And you can see that uh, we lifted far above the, the, the typical trend line during COVID when, when the Fed obviously created trillions of uh, bank reserves and those some of those reserves turn into deposits. And now, of course, those uh, numbers are shrinking, uh, not just because of the bank headlines, but even before then, as the Fed does quantitative tightening and starts shrinking those, those reserves. So banks have already lost about a, a trillion dollars in deposits. Um, I think the, the, the crisis stage uh, is probably getting behind us. You know, we had a few scares last Weak and, and those seem to be, um, so those seem to have kind of gone away. 
but it it but the 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 fundamental problem for the banks remains and that is that the average deposit rate which you see in the purple line below is about half a percent as i mentioned earlier and the fed is now at 5 to 5 and a quarter which means that a T-bill, a one-year T-bill, you can get close to 5%. On a money market fund, you can get close to 5%. So if if you're a bank customer and if you don't need to have that extra money at the bank, you know, to meet your payrolls or or have it for convenience so that you can run your ATM card, uh, chances are you're going to move that because you can get literally 10 times the rate that you could get at the bank if you put it in a time deposit or a money market fund. And so what you're seeing is that deposits are leaving the banks, not because necessarily because the banks are are expected to go under, but just because the difference is now so large. And again, as deposits flee, the banks have two choices. One, they can compete with those higher rates by paying more on their deposits, but then that brings their net interest margin upside down, which means they can't make as many loans. Um, And so that is one option that is not a good option for the banks. And the other one is that, you know, they just lose the deposits and they let them go. But then again, the capital ratios, the supplementary leverage ratio, et cetera, will force them to then sell assets to keep their ratios intact. And if those assets are sitting on a loss because those are those are bonds that they bought at the depths of of COVID, uh, then you know they're going to be upside down on their capital ratios. So there's no good answer other than the Fed lowers rates to two percent, and then all of these problems go away. But the Fed is not anywhere close to doing that. So no matter how you slice it, if you're not a mega bank or a very large regional where people are going to keep their money with you no matter what because you're safe and and it's convenient. Uh, If you're not one of those banks, you're going to be fighting for those deposits one way or the other, and that's going to come out of your bottom line. And so it's still a problem. But when I look at the banking index uh, here on my Bloomberg, um, you know, those banks have come down so much. And now that supposedly we're getting uh, or we're at the end of the Fed hiking cycle, um, you know, if I was a tactical investor, you know, the, the banks may be starting even start to look interesting here um, as a as a contrarian deep value type of play. Right. So, I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask you is whether you felt that most investors or, or, you know, bank customers feel like their deposits are backed up essentially by the insurance system uh, in the U.S., the federal insurance number. Is that is that calmed at this stage? I, I yes, I, I think so. I think you know the the the, the typical bank customer is not going to have more than two hundred fifty thousand you know lying around in a bank deposit, right? Uh, um, and and that's the FDIC limit. So the the risk has been more with businesses, you know, having like and for instance Silicon Valley Bank, that was a situation where these VC businesses, you know, had their money come in from from the limited partners and. They just put it at Silicon Valley Bank, um, and then their their you know their GPs are paying the, you know payrolls and everything, and so there that money is very um, hot because it will quickly leave if it's more than two hundred fifty thousand, which in most cases it was, and I think a lot of that money has already gone to the J.P. Morgans and Bank of Americas and Citigroup, et cetera. Um, so and and but for the average person, the two fifty I, I don't think is a threshold that's particularly uh, worrisome. 
so I, I, I do suspect that a lot of that uh, is behind us. I, I think the main risk, and we saw this last week, is that a bunch of investors just start attacking a bank's stock, right? So that it's not so much the deposit flight, but that you, you have this, this short attack on a stock and then the stock price goes down and that creates the the whole flurry of of rumors and what's going on with this bank um and and i think and and then and then that leads to deposit flight for no good reason other than the stock is being attacked maybe even for no good reason there so it, it, that's how sensitive the market is and i think that's kind of what happened last week some great questions coming in, a number of them swirling around the debt crisis, um, the debt ceiling discussion, the crisis and so on. So let, let's put a couple of these together. So one of them is beautiful manners, this investor uh, asking with as well. Uh, could you kindly explain the relationship between the debt ceiling and the TGA account, the Treasury General account, which you've explained before? And another question, do you have any debt ceiling worries or concerns? So. Um so yes, um, I, I do have concerns. I mean, historically, uh, and we've talked about this a number of times, but the debt ceiling is, is an opportunity for politicians to make, to score points. But at the end of the day, it's in no one's interest to actually let the government default. And that's basically been a good rule to, to live by. Uh, but if there was ever a, a scenario where the, the political dynamic in Washington is so is so toxic, um, you know. It would be now, and so Treasury Secretary Yellen has said has said that June one is the X date uh, at which the government will run out of money. And there's a lot of moving parts because um, the TGA account, which is the the Treasury's cash account at the Fed, um, has been largely depleted. And so remember, when the Fed does quantitative easing. The gains and the income accrued from that program go to the Treasury via the, the TGA account. And so if you remember two years ago, after the Fed you know, added $4 trillion to its balance sheet, uh, the TGA had about $2 trillion in it. And when the Treasury did the stimulus bill, instead of issuing bonds to pay for that bill, uh, they drew down the TGA. And that actually had some unintended consequences because the fact that the Treasury was not issuing any debt for that time meant, <coughs> excuse me, meant that yep. there were not enough T-bills for money market funds to buy, which means that, which meant that they then went to the reverse repro program to try to get yield for their customers. And that's why this whole reverse repo thing got out of hand with two trillion in repo. So it's all related. Um, and right now, one one of the variables is that, you know, it's tax season or it was tax season a few weeks ago. So the degree to which the Treasury would get tax receipts in from tax filings was an offsetting factor for drawing down the TGA account. And it looks like the tax receipts came in below expectations. And so the result is that there's maybe 100 billion or maybe 200 billion left in the TGA and it will be gone pretty soon. Um, and then a debt deal needs to be struck. And, you know, as, as is typically the case, the two sides are pretty, you know, are, are pretty adamant about it being a clean bill or there being conditions. Ultimately, as the saying goes, when you're staring over a cliff, the best thing to do is to build more land. And so at, at the end of the day, I suspect that that will happen. But, you know, could we go into um, a government shutdown? Sure. Um, you know, is there a chance that maybe some T-bill payment uh, will be technically defaulted on? Uh, if you look at 
the shape of the very short yield curve. So T-bills that mature in a month versus in two months, there's a very large difference between the two. So the market's already pricing that in. I mean, ultimately, I'm not particularly worried. I don't think the U.S. government is ever going to default, you know, in a, in a real way on anything, even if there is a, a temporary technical default on, on a T-bill or something. So my sense is that, you know, it's sort of whatever happens, if there is a volatility um, episode, kind of like what you had in Brexit, you know, many years ago, that ended up being a, a dip buying moment. And I think the same would happen here. Um, and so, but it's, we have to live through the theatrics first. Yeah, fascinating. Lots of questions on that. So it's great to to have you weigh in there. Um, is, is that perhaps something to, well, you know what, let's go to these first. So what is the prospect of bank um, acquisitions by bigger banks, this is in the US obviously, uh, that will create, will that create more balance in the banking sector? Um, do you think, you know, it's sort of that overbanked question, essentially. Yeah. So, so the US is overbanked. I, I believe we have still have 4,000 banks we used to have many, many more during the 90s. There was a very big wave of consolidation. Um, it's harder for banks to be acquired now because of all the regulations that are in place. And that's the same in Europe, right? Because then you have to deal with cross-border uh, dynamics and different countries having different rules. So it's there should be more consolidation. We don't need 4,000 banks, but the smaller banks is kind of the lifeblood for smaller businesses, right? They, they tend to get their loans from the community bank. So it is an important factor. And, you know, what we saw with First Republic, which was bought by JP Morgan, there's rules where you can't have more than, I think it's 10% of the deposit base, uh, which JP Morgan now has because it bought First Republic, but because it was a competitive bidding process. Remember that weekend where the we were waiting to see who was going to acquire? That was all orchestrated so that JP Morgan could get an exemption from getting even bigger than it is. So there are all kinds of regulations in place to prevent easy acquisitions. But I do think over time, uh, that's what's going to happen. And the FDIC has to, you know, just weigh uh, the pros and cons of, you know, what it costs to guarantee deposits versus uh, whether it's better just to consolidate the industry. But I think it, it's inevitable that it will happen, but they may have to change some rules first. Right. Yuri and Timmer, we'll, uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you for answering all the questions along the way, Yuri and Timmer. Great to see you. Nice to see you too. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you. See you next time.